is the Voicing Creativity Podcast, Voicing Creative Research. I'm Shannon Vickers, professor in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Winnipeg, where I teach somatic approaches to voice and performance and engage in interdisciplinary arts-based research. This first season of the Voicing Creativity Podcast focuses on voicing creative research. Each episode showcases the prolific and inspiring work of some of Canada's leaders across the humanities, highlighting their creativity in research, pedagogy, and artistic practice. Today's episode features Dr. Hannah McGregor. Dr. Hannah McGregor is a settler scholar living on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. While she has a background in contemporary Canadian literature and Canadian periodical studies, her current research focus is podcasting as public scholarship. With Siobhan McMenemy, senior editor at Wilfrid Laurier University Press, she is the co-editor of the Amplify Podcast Network, a Shirk-funded research project dedicated to developing the infrastructure to support scholarly podcasting. She created the network's pilot podcast, Secret Feminist Agenda, which underwent three seasons of experimental peer review. She is the co-host with Marcel Cosman of Which Please, a podcast that uses the Harry Potter series to introduce listeners to critical theory, and she hosts the Spoken Web Podcast, a collaborative monthly podcast that helps to share the research of the Spoken Web Project. In addition to her podcasting work, Hannah writes and edits books about feminism, media studies, podcasting, Canadian publishing, and soon, Dinosaurs. Her newest (laughs) book, A Sentimental Education, will be published with Wilfrid Laurier University Press in September 2022. Thank you so much, Dr. Hannah McGregor, for joining me today. It is an absolute privilege to have you here. I am a huge fan of yours. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Really, really so grateful that you're here. One of the things that you said in one of your YouTube videos was, Mm -hmm. what might a critical approach to scholarship look like if it were based on love? I have a theory on that. I think it would look an awful lot like fandom, engaged, enthused, uninhibited, critical, but lovingly so, and very, very uncool. Um, And so (laughs) you may hear a bit of fanish affect in my own voice um, thus far. Um, And I I sometimes do very, very uncool um, as my sort of MO. So I'm wondering if you could speak to this about this idea of critical scholarship based on love. I just love that idea. And of course, um, I read a bit about that as well through Bell Hooks work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I The the origin for that thinking comes out of um, a very particular piece uh, called When Nothing is Cool. Um, it's an article that was written by um, uh, Lisa Ruddick. And in it, she talks about the way that academia has a tendency to want us to give up our our objects. Um, so to have no points of attachment outside of the university um, to, to and that that's a sort of tactic on the part of the institution that if critical thinking means that we um, interrogate and ultimately reject any anything we might love, then our orientation becomes entirely towards work. And it's a way mm. of sort of extracting more labor from from the scholar as you know as a critic, 
And I have been thinking about that a lot. I don't, I don't love the way that Ruddick herself frames what those objects of attachment might be um, because they are quite conservative objects of attachment. Mm. Um, But the idea of moving with love through the work that we are doing has been quite transformative for me in terms of what I feel empowered to do as a scholar and what I feel empowered to say no to. Um, Mm. You know, in the sense that, for example, here's one of here's one of my my key examples is yes, please. There is, I think, for those of us doing work that is oriented towards social change, a sense that our job is constantly to debate, to convince, to argue, um, to always be finding the people who disagree with us the most and trying to convince those people. (laughs) Um, And I'm quite good at debating and convincing and arguing. And because I'm quite good at it, I have done a lot of it, but I don't love it. In fact, Mm -hmm. I find it incredibly draining. What Mm -hmm. I love is building things. I love collaborating. I love um, having conversations with people who, you know, are oriented towards the same possible futures as I am and to use conversation as a way to arrive at something that is more than what either of us could have understood on our own. And, you know, I think maybe some people love debate. Maybe that is just a source of deep pleasure for them. And in that case, you know, go forth and enjoy. Um, (laughs) But it's not not a source of pleasure for me. And letting go of that and recognizing that, like, it can be the work of somebody else or it can be nobody's work who cares um was so (laughs) was so liberating um and wasn't was an opportunity to say no to these things that I didn't love doing so that I could spend more time doing these things I do love doing Mm. and and then those things are so much more um more joyful and energizing for me Mm-hmm. Because, I, because I actually love doing them. I love that. Yeah, it's, uh, you're really speaking to creativity. And, you know, uh, as you were speaking about the things that you love, I mean, there are a lot of things that I also love too. You know, you mentioned that you love building things, love collaborating, love conversations. Um, one of the things that you had, uh, I had engaged with one of your publications mentioned maker pedagogy, this idea of making things. And mm-hmm. I was struck with both the reading that I did and the listening and also now in our conversation Uh, And I guess this is a theme of the whole podcast as I meet with more and more participants for this first season that, you know, the idea was to create a podcast that would serve uh, my community of voice scholars and and practice-based performance voice, um, Mm -hmm. you know, peeps. And um, (laughs) I'm noticing that there is so much similarity across the fields of humanity with what we do because in theater we we love building things we love collaborating we love conversations yeah. we we want to be in the room working together and building something and being surprised at what we create together it's joyful mm-hmm. 
Um, so you're you're really uh, advocating for an arts based way of doing things in yeah. across institutions. I think you're really pioneering a major sea change across academia with the work that you're doing, of which I thank you from the depths of my heart <laughs> as I an mean, artist in the academy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's interesting because I think, you know, my work has gotten a certain, a certain leverage, like a kind of foothold, which is, you know, always it's, it's grand. It's something I feel very grateful for. Um, and I'm trying to sort of use, as responsibly as I can. And part of that is recognizing that like, I'm actually not pioneering really anything here um, because research creation predates me significantly. Um, art happening within the university predates me significantly. Um, you know, feminist interventions into knowledge production that value community and collaboration. All of this, all of this came before me, right? Like I am... I am picking up the threads of these conversations that have been happening through, um, uh, you know, feminist organizing through um, lots of different scholarly fields that recognize a sense of commitment to publics and communities outside the university. Um, and so, you know, there's always this part of me that's like, yeah, you know what? I'm doing good work. I feel proud of my work. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also very lucky. Like, you know, the timing worked out. Um, I I am a person with a lot of privilege whose voice is, is audible in ways that others' voices are not. And so I it's it I always want to think of myself as a like, I am again part of this collective. That mm. like, you know, we're we're all doing this work in different ways. Um Who's the we? Who's the we all in that? I don't know. Feminists. We're all <laughs> we're all we're all doing the work. We're all finding our place, um, our little piece of the wall. We've all got our little tiny rock hammers, and we're just we just found our little piece of the wall, and we're just chipping away at it, just chipping. You know this idea, and this is a, another quote of yours. I hope that's okay. <laughs> you know, you mentioned a kind of feminist question of what kind of knowledge we value, and how storytelling is a kind of knowledge making. That there's a whole feminist history of thinking about how we do value storytelling as a legitimate form of knowledge production. Can you speak a bit to that for our listeners and what that means for anybody that's not uh, super versed in feminist theory and the history that you know so much about yeah I think you know one of the really key uh interventions of feminist theory into uh how we think about knowledge creation you know both within and beyond the university is about shifting how we understand sort of expertise uh and a lot of the sort of attendant ideas around you know, what constitutes expertise. So, so there's this sort of fundamentally um, patriarchal and colonial understanding of expert knowledge as being objective, um, mm -hmm. as being something that can be separated out from the specific location of the person creating that knowledge um, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, doesn't have anything to do with that person. And, and there's so many ways in which that framing of knowledge has failed us collectively. Um, you know, examples come to mind of like 
the the field of Western medicine has been mm-hmm. almost entirely dominated by white men. Um, and those white men have developed um, uh, norms and practices and guidelines and procedures that center them. Uh, but that deep bias towards their particular embodiment, subjectivity, experiences of the world are erased through the sort of framing of that knowledge as objective, um, as coming out of nowhere, as coming from Mm -hmm. nobody, just sort of emerging fully formed Mm -hmm. as knowledge. (laughs) Um, And then we, you know, we stumble across these, these things that are like, oh yeah, whether or not you can get health insurance depends on your BMI. Um, And everybody's acknowledged that BMI absolutely doesn't apply to black people. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. like, it just doesn't at all. It, it doesn't make any sense. But BMI is still used widely as though it is an actual number that could actually be useful. Um, you know, we see this in, in race bias in the, in the tech fields um, mm-hmm. where like facial recognition software just won't work on people who aren't white. Um, and so we've got this world of knowledge that was created by a, a very particular subsection of the population, but was created as though it was objective and neutral because that subsection of the population has always been the one who has, you know, command of the neutral eye, the one who can speak as though they are neutral and uninflected by their identities. And so, you know, a lot of fields that have been about the knowledge creation of people who are not straight white cis men has been about both insisting that their knowledge has to be located, you know, (laughs) situated, um, (laughs) contextualized, uh, and then has also been showing how the knowledge we can create looks really different because it is contextualized differently. And so, you know, it's a, so much of it for me, this, this feminist intervention is about putting ourselves back in so that we can account for this. Is, there's, a, there's a phrase that Catherine McKittrick uses in Dear Science. She refers to this as, as recognizing where we know from. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. It's such a perfect phrase. Mm-hmm. I'm going to uh, continue with this idea of embodiment, um, if that's okay with you. And just, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was really, this is one of these um, things that you said that really, really stood out to me from your absolutely prolific scholarship and research. Um, And I'm going to put lots of show notes in here for everybody interested um, in getting a sense of all of the amazing work that you've done. Um, this for me really did speak to sort of my journey in the in the academy and um, I'm thinking about my own work as an artist. So thank you so much for this. I'm going to read it. Uh, you mm-hmm. said, I became really interested in how podcasting could particularly stage a feminist intervention into scholarly communication that's about putting the body back into the work via the voice as an instrument for carrying aspects of our embodiment, putting the first person putting the uh, first person back in, putting the personal back in, thinking about what it means to be vulnerable in the way you do scholarly work, 
to talk about failure, to be openly and publicly uncertain about complex ideas rather than only talking about things once you've decided you totally understand them. The podcast became a space for me to try to enact those critiques of conventional scholarly communication. And I'll just add that you modeled that so beautifully with such courage that it has served as uh, an inspiration uh, for this podcast. So thank you so much for all of the amazing publicly engaged work that you do. It really has, has definitely reached me and inspired where I want to head in the future. Can you speak a bit about um, that idea of embodied knowledge and vulnerability and learning as you go that you, you uh, embodied through the Secret Feminist Agenda podcast yeah, you, over those seasons? You know, I learned how to do that through making Witch Please. Um, mm. that's, that is where, you know, speaking of learning as you do, um, it was it was which please that taught me that those modes of knowledge creation were even possible. And part of what sort of so so which please is this podcast that I started in 2015 with my dear friend Marcel Cosman. And um we really started it just as like a structured reason to hang out together. <laughs> and it's awesome weren't anticipating a listenership beyond, you know, maybe a handful of friends. Uh, and because we weren't, you know, I think if we, if we had been thinking about a wider listenership, I don't think we would have had the courage to make that podcast the way that we did. Um, mm. I think we would have, we would have disciplined ourselves much more from the beginning. Mm. Um, but we, you know, we didn't have this sense that it would expand beyond our immediate community. And so we were quite silly, which is part of it, right? Like we talk about bringing mm -hmm. affect back into, back into our work. And I think, you know, there's a tendency to focus on like grief and, and sorrow. Um, but it's also about silliness and whimsy and pleasure and, um, play. you know, we play exactly. And, you know, we, we, would record I mean we still do record episodes you know under the influence of various intoxicants and and we'll often talk about sort of where we are physically positioned and what's happening with our bodies and what's happening in our households and you know when we first started we recorded the very first episode just so drunk um <laughs> and then very shortly afterwards Marcel became pregnant um and so then we recorded episodes where I was drunk and she was sober, which was very funny because it made her very mad. Um, <laughs> but, but we would talk about these things, right? She would talk about like the physical experience of being pregnant. And, um, you know, we would talk about what was happening in our bodies and how we were feeling. And then once Elliot, her daughter was born, we would, you know, be passing the baby back and forth while recording and you can hear baby sounds in the background and mm -hmm. and you know we 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 did it that way because that's who we were um because we in a lot of ways like didn't know better um which is a great way to do things that are radical it's just to never get disciplined in the first place um that. and that's part of why I hold such fondness for amateurism in podcasting um, that I love when people who haven't been professionalized within an inch of their lives make podcasts, 
um, because they don't even know what they're supposed to be. Like you might not know what you're supposed to be doing in the first place. And so you can break all kinds of rules, maybe without even realizing, which is very fun. Um, that is cool. But I, but I slowly learned through which please that like we could make mistakes. Like, you know, we could misspeak or get things wrong and listeners would say, hey, you were wrong about this. And then on the next episode, we could be like, hey, we were wrong about this. Let's talk about that. Um, or, you know, I could cry in an episode and that would be fine. I could. One of the things I am now best known for is my laugh. I'm like, what a great thing to be known for as a scholar. Absolutely. Known for the sound of my extremely loud laugh. Um, And so I I had learned all of this stuff sort of just in that like accidental way through making Witch Please. And so when I started making Secret Feminist Agenda, I was able to take all of that learning and bring it much more intentionally into the project to say, like, I have a sense now of what it means to me to think out loud, to invite responsiveness, to mm-hmm. um, to think things through, you know, alongside my listeners or alongside my guests, to um, to let my voice register affect and not go back and try to edit that out. Oh, I um, love that. Yeah. Or, or, you know, in situations, often the episodes for the minisodes, the ones that were hardest often have these long pauses in them as I would like struggle to find the words. And mm. I, you know, I'll edit those pauses out, but like not entirely, <laughs> you know, know, you want to leave a little breathing room in there. Um, and maybe because like a 30 second pause is people are going to think that their pod, that their phone is broken. But, um, <laughs> you know, I or I would like just say out loud in the introduction to the episode, like this one was really hard to edit because this felt really close to home. And so mm-hmm. having having. I had I had learned from which please that one sort of what the power of this kind of work was. But two, also that like this feminist community of listeners would receive this vulnerability with a great deal of gentleness and kindness. Mm-hmm. That and you spoke to care as well. That there's care. Yeah, there. mm-hmm. yeah. And and knowing that, you know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot easier to be brave once you figured out that like that 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 vulnerability or that bravery is going to be received with care and kindness. And I'm sure that care and kindness must uh, help when, you know, I men- you mentioned in something that I engaged with where you said, you know, I'm, I take that feedback very seriously. Um, and then you mentioned that um, you did get some feedback from uh, a male that you sort of were like, you know what? No, I don't need, I don't need to take that one in. I'll just let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you find that that community of care, and this has come up actually in a few of the conversations that I've had thus far, that having that community of care, having that uh, community that supports your creativity with genuine love and admiration and care has sort of 
I don't know what the word is. Has it helped you to sort of have uh, an easier sort of, uh, you know, water off a duck's back kind of thing if you were to get a kind of, you know, response from someone and you can kind of go, you know what, in the grand scheme of things, look at this, I've got this great community. So this one bit of feedback that I know really I shouldn't pay attention to is not going to keep me up at night. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, part of doing work in public has been for me sort of making these fine grained decisions about, you know, what feedback am I going to respond to and what feedback am I not going to respond to, you know, mm. what, what, what will I take seriously and what can I actually comfortably dismiss? Um, mm. And I, I think, you know, like a lot of people trying to think about doing their work responsibly, I have a tendency, my default is always to take the criticism. Um, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to take the criticism to heart. And then of course there's that phenomenon where you can get, you know, you get your teaching evaluations and a hundred of them are nice and one of them is terrible. And you're just going to think about the terrible one every day and totally forget about the nice ones. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, learning how to, um, how to figure out how to like attend to critique, engage with it, and then decide, you know, is this, is this a conversation that is important to me? Is this a conversation that I, I need to give time to, um, you know, is there something here that I actually really need to, to work through? And the best way of doing that for me is to like, bring it to other people in my community. How um, awesome. Yeah. I mean, doing sitting just, if you sit down and try to do it in your own head, I mean, that way for me, at least spells disaster. Um, but this for me is where those really vital non-public community spaces come in mm. that, you know, I am somebody who does a lot of my thinking out loud um, and a lot of my thinking publicly. And I am also somebody who has a very strong sense of what kinds of thinking I should not be doing out loud and what kinds of thinking I have no business doing publicly. Um, and that might involve conversations that are unfolding in communities that I am not a member of, mm -hmm. um, that maybe I'll want to process with friends, but that certainly I have no business going on Twitter and having an opinion about them mm -hmm. because like, you know, stay in your lane, white lady, mm -hmm. like you yeah. don't need to, you don't need to say everything out loud. Um, and, and that also, you know, is part of, of responding to critique that, if somebody calls you in, in a way that you really want to engage with, um, I think it is really helpful to do the processing, the emotional processing and the feelings work and the, the figuring out what your next steps are going to be, you know, within more intimate communities of care mm -hmm. so that you don't you know, make your feelings necessarily everybody's problem. And that's yes. a really, that's a, I think a, an important corrective 
to this kind of these conversations about, you know, putting affect back into our work and, and putting embodiment back into our work is that for some white people that, and what I think white women in particular, that becomes an excuse to let our feelings derail conversations or an excuse to let our feelings um, uh, dominate, take over, uh, or just take up space that our feelings don't need to be taking up. And Mm -hmm. so understanding that like, your feelings have a lot to teach you, your feelings are valid, your feelings deserve to have time and space. And that doesn't mean that you do all of your feeling out loud at everyone Uh all the time. At everyone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's like you, you, you need to have containers for, for those feelings. You need to have boundaries. You need Mm -hmm. to, you need to both be able to say like, okay, this person is emoting at me and actually Mm -hmm. it's not my problem. And so I'm going to feel empowered to just disregard this. And you also need to be able to say like, wow, I'm having a lot of feelings about this. So I'm going to take it to the group chat and process it there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and then maybe I'll say something out loud about it later, but it actually doesn't need to happen out loud. Thank you so much for speaking so beautifully to all of this. This has been really, really great to hear. So thank you so much. Um, I'm wondering if you are up for chatting a bit about your, I would maybe call it with my own words, a sort of uh, larger project with the podcasts and peer review, which um, I, I kind of sense is that you're hoping to transform the university and what we value as scholarship within uh, the university. Um, mm-hmm. Are you up for that chatting a bit yeah. about that? Okay, great. Yeah, Um, At one point in something that I engaged with, you mentioned that the more we come to rely on these very conservative metrics, the harder it is to have a more sort of open, capacious, flexible understanding of the value of creating new knowledge in non-traditional ways, which is really at the heart of this project for me, which is sort of pushing against that conservative conservative desire to have all knowledge fit into these tiny little metrics and matrices Mm -hmm. and instead say, like, not only it is is it important that we have lots and lots and lots of different formats and venues where we're creating and sharing knowledge, but also it's important as academics that we critique the very restriction of what we think counts as real knowledge creation. That yeah. is so important in my world. And I'd love to hear you speak a bit more about that, please. Yeah. You know, There is this really steady process happening right now within post-secondary education on a global scale um, that is often referred to as the neoliberalization of the university. But it really Mm -hmm. is this sort of the way that, that neoliberal governance has reframed universities as needing to justify our existence through a very particular set of criteria. Um, And... That process is much further along in some places than in others. I think, you know, we can look at the incredibly disastrous changes that are happening in the UK right now, um, Mm. where, God, I I was just reading about an English department that got shut down 
because the this government was refusing to fund any departments um, where they failed to prove that 60% of their graduates had gotten jobs in fields relevant to their degrees within six months of graduation. Oh my God. And that's the kind of like the, the metrification of Mm -hmm. education that will destroy education Um, where it has to be this like money in money out. If we're going to fund a department, you have to prove that people are getting jobs based on it. Right. It's this, it's this logic that reduces every human activity to its, um, you know, economic profit. Um, and it's so dehumanizing and it's so, um, it's so devastating to the idea of, of knowledge creation. Um, and while it is obvious how bad it is in those extreme situations, it is, insidiously infiltrating every aspect of what we do in the university um, in ways that so often all of us are just like, I don't have the energy to fight this. Like, fine. Mm -hmm. I will, I will fill out, you know, when I apply for a shirk grant at the very top of the CCV, they are going to make me fill in a box that says how many things peer reviewed things I've published. And what am I going to do? Not fill in that box. Like I can't, they, there's no option. The box will only let me put numbers in it. So I can't edit. I can't enter a short essay about the dangers of metrics. So I'm just going to put, just going to put the fucking number in the box. Um, and, you know, these things happen over and over again. We had a, a, a meeting, my faculty had a meeting with the, um, our associate dean research. No, our associate vice president research. Yeah. Top level, top level guy, um, because we're creating a new strategic plan at our university. And uh, he opened it by showing us all of these metrics, all of these charts about, you know, where SFU stands. And um, and then the framing of the strategic plan was, well, how can we keep improving these metrics? And my colleague, Juan Pablo Alperin, who is a a scholarly communication, a scholar of scholarly communication, um, who particularly researches metrics, was like, we can't make decisions based on these metrics. They're not measuring anything useful. Hmm. None of these, none of these are like, you know, we're measuring um, impact, like publication impact. Uh, And that is just about, you know, whether or not your publication, you know, what kind of journal you're published in and whether or not that publication gets, you know, referenced in one of a very small number of, you know, public platforms. So like it doesn't have any sense of community impact, uptake of research, long term impact of research. Like we we aren't good at measuring these things. Um, And so we measure the things that are easy to measure and then we let those metrics reshape what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the drive towards just giving into those metrics is a drive away from the kinds of like 
you know, shit disturbing work that we so desperately actually need right now. (laughs) Um, UNESCO just released a report in November 2021, released a report on open science in which they're like, okay, this is paraphrasing because it's written in very, you know, politicalese language. But the, Mm -hmm. the gist of the report is hey guys, the world's on fire. So maybe we could stop caring about like, you know, publishing in prestigious public, you know, stop caring about the like impact factor of that journal and the (laughs) citation numbers. And we could actually think about like what our research actually needs to be doing right now. Yeah. Um, and, And that's going to include a lot of things like, um, bringing our research directly to the communities that it impacts, having it be in conversation with those communities, um, expanding our sense of peer review such that people outside the university are involved in it. Um, you know, really uh-huh. thinking about, about how to move our research through the world in a way that lets it do what we actually need it to be doing. Um, and I was like, God, even UNESCO is like, hey, could you stop talking about <laughs> about metrics and then you you know you sit down at your university meeting and everybody's like all right let's talk about metrics and it's like I can't but you know it's it's so hard to to say no to those things right it's so hard when you're inside an institution to resist the logics of that institution um and yet it is vital because we can see what happens when we let these logics continue to take over in Canada, we are, we are lucky to still have a like kind of publicly funded kind of independent university system. Um, And, and part of fighting for that is continuing to do work on lots and lots of different fronts that pushes back against you know, those metrics, those, those ways of counting that so fundamentally fail to understand what the mission of the university actually should be. Mm-hmm. So those of us that, you know, do community-based work, arts-based work, I think it's really important for us to um, publish in the modes that we, that we <laughs> have expertise in and to stand up for those, those types of scholarship yeah yeah and I you know I think about about these questions around counting community engaged scholarship and in some ways podcasting is the low-hanging fruit here because it is still like produces a lot of deliverables that are kind of countable in an obvious way like I made this number of episodes and this number of people listen to those episodes. So here you go. Um, mm-hmm. But so much vital community engaged scholarship is about relationship building and dialogue. And yes. that doesn't, you know, it's about process and those processes don't necessarily happen in public. It depends on the communities you're engaging with. It depends on their protocols. It depends on what's safe for them. Um, you know, a lot of that relationship building needs to happen privately or you know needs to happen before anything can start to actually be made and 
that is a vital form of work that we are so bad at valuing in the university because it really can't be counted. Um, And so, you know, we'll say, yeah, absolutely. We want people to do community engaged work. And then you go off and do community engaged work. And then your tenure and promotion committee is like, well, where are all your publications? You're like, well, I've been been doing this community engaged work. I don't, that's not how that works. For me, part of, part of this work is like, it's like the, the thin edge of the wedge. Is that the thin, you know, it's like, it's like a, a way of, of, just opening a little bit um while recognizing that like the point isn't just to say well look i've been productive over here instead of over there and then so look at all of these <laughs> at one <laughs> point in the in the peer review of the first season of secret feminist agenda we asked the peer reviewers how they would count the podcast in terms of mm-hmm. output and mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were like, okay, you know, is it the equivalent, like, is the, a season the equivalent of a book? Is a season the equivalent of an article? Is, you know, how, how are we, how are we actually going to count this? Um, and she, Cheryl Ball wrote in her response, she was so, she was like, oh, I hate questions about counting. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming and I hate it. Um, and she was like, you can't, you can't count the podcast in any of the same ways that we count other kinds of scholarship. We shouldn't even try. In fact, we need to stop talking about counting altogether because quantifiability is not the point. And that is such a like. She's so, so she's, brilliant. So funny. She's, she's wonderful. And has really been somebody who has like, you know, done a lot of capacity building in this, in this, you know, non-traditional scholarship, this world of non-traditional scholarship. But, um, uh, you know, that, that question, like, even as I think about that response, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. But what do we do if we're not counting things? <laughs> like, yeah, what do we, how do, you know, at some point I am going to have to write my, well, I did, mm-hmm. like, I just got tenure. Um, congratulations thank you and lucky to have you i had a i had to write a a thing a thing that said you know here are the ways in which i am productive as a scholar um here here are the contributions i have made such that this university should make this significant investment in the future of my career and uh and how do you do that without counting is a real it's a real it is a real challenge and I think a, a necessary challenge, um, a conversation we should all be engaging in. You know, one of the things that I love is uh, I get the sense that you're sort of, you have a broad view, both, um, you know, sort of global and also local. And so I think there's micro and macro in everything that you want to fix. You know, I'm listening to your many, <laughs> uh, you know, YouTube videos and, and engaging with your writing, um, you know, all of your amazing work. And I noticed you're, you're, part of the thing is you're sort of also fixing um, a little bit of the peer review process itself, you know, at one point, and I just loved this as well, you said that peer review can be, can be great. We just sort of have to reconstruct it a bit so that it encourages compassion. So it's oriented towards helping us all to make 
better work. And then mm-hmm. later on, you mentioned that um, I've come out as someone who's like, peer review is incredible. We're just doing it wrong, right? But there's this amazing <laughs> no. potential if we rethink the actual forms in which we do peer review for it to be like this incredible form of mentorship that can sometimes, you know, fall off in our careers once we leave grad school. Could you mm-hmm. speak a little bit more about all of that? And um and just your feelings on mentorship, which have has been a theme uh, with each guest. It's definitely something I care about a lot in uh, yeah. in my own life as well. Please and thanks. Yeah. It's definitely been something that I've had to wrap my head around as I am like, oh, I'm not an early career scholar anymore. I'm <laughs> decidedly not an early career scholar anymore. Okay. How do I, how do I stop? As a, God, as a dear friend of mine said when I, um, when I got my first tenure evaluation back before I sort of gotten the official letter, but that first, that first response, um, I read it to her and she was like, you are really going to have to wrap your head around the fact that you are no longer a like, you know, grubby little shit disturber. You are the man now. <laughs> and, what is, and what does that mean? And like, truly, is there anybody who is more the man than a tenured university professor? Like mm-hmm. that is, I'm going to grow a distinguished beard and start wearing elbow patches. Like I am the man. And so <laughs> that, re- that requires a reorientation because my self image is still very much grubby little dirt bag skulking through the, you know, hallways of the institution, um, constantly being mistaken for a graduate student. <laughs> like So, so there's definitely some like, reframing I'm having to do at this particular moment in my career that is about mentorship. And luckily for me, you know, this process, particularly of working with Siobhan has really helped open up my understanding of what mentorship can look like because of these, this new type of peer review I suddenly gained access to. Um, So, you know, prior to this work, this podcasting work, really, I had encountered most stages of academia as a form of deliberate formal gatekeeping. Um, You know, I... I, Thank you for speaking to this. Yeah. I mean, my comprehensive exams during my PhD were so clearly framed to me as a gatekeeping process. You know, I was Mm -hmm. reminded again and again, you can fail this. This is not just a formality. You can fail this. Um, And then again, you know, my defense was like, this is not a formality, um, nor is this meant to be a like warm and enriching conversation. This is meant to be a harrowing experience through which you demonstrate that you have what it takes and that model of like in order to be an academic you must be (laughs) repeatedly harrowed um you know it's it's the model rigor yes yes (laughs) exactly if it's not harrowing it's not rigorous um Uh. and it's it's what a lot of my mentorship looked like it's you know the way I was mentored looked like that a lot. Um, It's what a lot of the peer review I've received has looked like. Um, It's what a lot of my experiences at conferences have been, is this kind Mm -hmm. of, 
in order to create a community of rigor, we will tear one another down. Um, Mm -hmm. We will, you know, we will look for the weak points in one another's scholarship. We'll, We'll zero in on a weak point and then just go in for the kill, you know, and that, Mm -hmm. and that's what critical thinking looks like. And I was so used to that, that I was like, you know, the one place that I had found joy in my scholarly work was, was making which please, um, because that was not, you know, people were not receiving it as this thing that needed to be (laughs) interrogated, um, with the purpose of destroying it, right? When people did critique it, it was with the purpose of, of improving it. Um, and so when we decided, when Siobhan and I decided that Secret Feminist Agenda would be the podcast that we peer reviewed, I was really nervous because I was like, I don't, peer review sucks. I don't, I don't want to take this, this work that feels really vulnerable and let, I don't want somebody to be like, okay, yeah, I know this is, you know, an episode where you're talking through this, this really vulnerable thing, but actually there's this logical contradiction in the way that you frame this. I was like, I don't, I can't, Uh can't deal with that. And, you know, Siobhan's response was, I won't find you peer reviewers who will treat your work like that. What an amazing editor. Truly remarkable, you know, and again, Uh somebody, somebody whose work is, is really, really informed by, you know, a queer and feminist politics that is oriented towards doing work that matters, not, Uh. not, you know, drawing lines around the university such that we sort of build a reputation based on prestige. Like she, you know, she has no time for that either. And so she really showed me, she and the various, you know, feminist peer reviewers that, that, did the review for Secret Feminist Agenda, really showed me that peer review can be this incredibly rich and engaging process that is about understanding what somebody is trying to do with their work and helping them to make that work better. Which Mm. doesn't mean that it's just about patting each other on the back and saying, you're so smart, everything you do is so good. It's about coming in with this goal of improvement, this goal of engaging the work on its own terms um, and and helping to build something. I just did this, um, I was an external on a PhD defense last week. Mm. and, uh, And the student just wrote to me and the other examiner and was like, that was nothing like what I thought it was going to be like. I had been led to think that a defense was going to be, you know, harrowing. And instead, mm-hmm. it felt like a really constructive form of collective feminist knowledge making in which this project I've been pouring all of my energy and love and attention and care and time into for years was taken seriously, taken up on its own terms and, and still pushed, you know, like there was still space to, to push and expand and interrogate and question, but always with this, this feeling of 
yeah, we're, we're here together to try to make this, we're trying to figure something out together. So let's, yeah, let's figure it out together. And it was so that email reminded me so much of my own experience of having secret feminist agenda peer reviewed, just this aha moment of like, Oh, we can do these things differently. Like we actually have to just, we don't have to reproduce the harmful logics through which we were professionalized and, and brought into the institution. We can in fact say, no, there's better ways to do this. Um, Oh yeah. And that, that for me has been where I have sort of felt my way into mentorship is just being like, here were good experiences I had. Yeah. Now I am going to try to facilitate them for other people. Yes. Yeah. And if we if we were treated, you know, less than kindly, um, you know, we have the opportunity now to use our positions to maybe turn that around and be a little bit more yeah. compassionate and more kind. I, fo- I have found it to be sort of remarkable when people are kind and I don't think it should actually be so remarkable. I think it should be the norm. I, We're teaching, know. you know, like that's the actual thing we're there to do is to, you know, engage in pedagogy. And how yeah. can we do that if we don't have relationships, you know, built on caring about humans? Yeah. 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 I, I, <laughs> I deeply believe that kindness and rigor are not only not mutually exclusive, but like actually Mm -hmm. really um, serve one another that like, it's much more possible when you have built a relationship with somebody um, and when you understand where they're coming from and what they're trying to do to actually really deeply interrogate their work um, and push them. Right. Like I agree. uh, As opposed to that, that response, I think that like embodied response to ungenerous critique, it makes me lock up. Yeah. um, And, and it kind of activates this, like actually fuck you. Like, actually, I'm gonna now do this thing out of spite. Um, or I'm going to, you know, I've, I I have rewritten articles as spiteful responses to peer review. And those articles are always very bad. Because scholarship, <laughs> scholarship written out of spite is not good. um and i and i've seen that that. i've seen that as a peer reviewer as well right that like i'll i'll i i i will respond to an article and then get the the revision back you know do revise and resubmit and read the next draft and be like oh man reviewer b definitely said something fucked up about this thing like I can tell because this person is in a fight with the reviewer. Oh, B. No. I, can, I can see it. They've written in this whole section that is just <laughs> a fight with reviewer B. Um, and it doesn't make the scholarship better. It just means that now there's a whole section in it. That's a fight with somebody. That's one side of a fight with somebody that the reader can't see. Um, uh. Yeah. So, so I, 
I really do think that grounding these practices in kindness and care and accountability will not only produce, you know, less toxic environments within academia for us and for our students, but Mm -hmm. will also actually produce better work. I agree. I agree. As we draw to a close, um, I wondered if you could speak a bit to something that you said in one of your uh, many talks where you said we can actually collectively dream a different world where we actually don't think that our value is equated with our productivity and that was just, I'm doing a terrible job reading this. Let me try that again. Let's just, you know, I just want to hear you speak creatively about this idea of collectively dreaming a different world, please. You know, that I found that very um, inspiring and I think it informs my own uh, trajectory of where my research and creative work is heading. And I'd love to hear you sort of speak to that as we draw to a close season. You know, that, that, that framing in particular, I think, was inspired quite a lot by um, a book by Leah Lakshmi Peeps and the Samarasena called Care Work Dreaming Disability Justice. Mm, um, yeah. And it is, you know, a lot of my critiques of, of productivity culture in academia have emerged directly out of reading disability justice work. Um, and, you know, particularly the disability justice work of... Um, queer people of color that has, you know, grounded in it both this sort of, you know, utopian idea of like dreaming, collectively dreaming a future in which we can all survive um, uh-huh. and, and recognizing that if we are dreaming this future together, it has to be a future that's actually for all of us. And, and so it's become this very helpful corrective for me in my mind as I think about a you know an expectation I might have of myself or of my students or of my colleagues and then I think to myself you know is this part of that dream is this is this contributing to making a world that has space for everybody to survive or even to thrive um you know and so often the answer is going to be like oh god no absolutely not (laughs) You know, and it will be, it will be these practical things sometimes of saying like, okay, you know, what's my policy on late penalties going to be in my classes? Am I going to punish students for submitting work late? And I'm like, Uh okay, well, in the world that I want us to be collectively dreaming towards, are people punished for doing things slower? Uh Absolutely not. What a nightmare. (laughs) What a nightmare yeah, to imagine a world. Profession. Yeah, yeah. And can we, you know, the the there's a line that um that recurs in care work um about you know that we move at the speed of the slowest. And that that's you know that that's beautiful, that we're not trying that we're not racing each other, but that we're actually taking the pace of whoever is moving the slowest. And so, you know when I am developing a project or developing a class, instead of saying, you know, I'm going to orient this to, to whoever's working the fastest, to whoever moves the most seamlessly through this institution and everybody else can just, you know, catch up or fall behind. I don't care. If instead I say, no, the point here 
is that I want everybody to come along with this. So what needs to happen to make it possible for everybody to be coming along together? And that's, you know, it's a dream. Like it's a, it's an aspiration. It's a, it's a, a future to orient myself towards that helps to guide the decisions that I make. And it's never going to be a possibility that I realize perfectly in the work that I do or the decisions that I make. Um, but always having that, that, that possibility in mind, always orienting myself towards that kind of collective dream just Aww. helps me remember what actually matters. Mm-hmm. You know, you're doing such important work. I, f- I feel that you're transforming um, education and research and publication to move away from that harrowed experience that was mm. equated with rigor in some of our experiences, you know, uh, in academia, students along the educational path and towards compassion, you know, for others and also, as you mentioned, self-compassion for ourselves so that we have some mm-hmm. space to give ourselves some space um, to sometimes rest, <laughs> move slowly, uh, you know, dream. Um, I want to thank you so much, uh, Hannah McGregor, Dr. Hannah McGregor, for your time today and your sharing of your um, amazing wild intellect and beautiful imagination and heart. I can't thank you enough. It's been an absolute privilege. So thank you so, so much. It's been a real joy. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to learn more about any of the resources we spoke about in this episode, please check out our show notes on voicingcreativity.com, where you can also email or send us a voice memo with your feedback at podcast at voicingcreativity.com. You can follow us at Voicing Podcast on Twitter, and you can tweet about the podcast by using the hashtag voicingcreativitypodcast. You can also rate and review this show at Apple Podcasts. The Voice and Creativity podcast was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji-Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. The Voice and Creativity podcast is supported by the University of Winnipeg Research Office, the University of Winnipeg Human Research and Ethics Board, and the University of Winnipeg Faculty of Arts and by research assistant Jordan Berkman. A special thank you to Dave Peterson of Ross River Dana Territory. The podcast theme song is Beauty Is All by Ketza from the album Creative Center. You can download more of their work on freemusicarchive.org and from their website, ketzamusic.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other season one episodes. Thank you for listening to the Voicing Creativity Podcast. Thank you.